Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So what is Jesus' kingdom all about? What kind of a kingdom is he establishing? Well, it begins here. It begins in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 19, as he sets apart these 12 individuals. So there are three questions that arise out of this text that I want to address today as we ask that question, what kind of kingdom is Jesus establishing? Three questions. The first is, why did Jesus choose any? He had lots of disciples. Why designate 12? The second question is, why 12? Why not 5 or 6 or 7 or 30 or 50? Why 12? And the third question is, why mention Judas? Why mention the specific little detail? None of the other apostles are given very much detail. We're told that Simon had a nickname that Jesus gave him, Peter. We're told that James and John had a nickname too, Sons of Thunder. And then we're told that Judas betrayed him. Why tell us that now? So those are the three questions. And I'm going to actually spend the least amount of time on the first. Why did Jesus choose any? And I just want to answer it without showing my work so we can move on to more interesting things. And I'm just going to say this. Jesus seems to have set apart these twelve for very different reasons than kings usually set apart advisors or judges or rulers or something else. Sometimes they're buffers so that the king or the leader doesn't have to deal with all of the minuscule little issues. And so he sets up other rulers, kind of sub-rulers, viceroys and other such things, so that they can handle the easy things and the king can be left alone to handle kingly affairs, things like that. And so sometimes that's why kings set up these kind of groups. Jesus was very popular. Maybe these are sort of supposed to be bodyguards, right? To keep the crowds away from him. Maybe these are going to be the rulers of the next kingdom. Because we know, as we know how the end of the story ends, Jesus dies, he rises from the dead, and then he ascends to heaven. So maybe these are going to be princes, 12 princes of the new kingdom of God. The, the, the disciples probably thought all of those things. Mark indicates that they were confused as to why Jesus set them apart. At times they tried to run interference for Jesus, and Jesus yelled at them for doing it. And so they thought, okay, we're not a buffer, apparently. Other times they thought they were going to be kings and princes, of the new kingdom. So they asked the natural question. Jesus, when we come into the kingdom, who's going to be the greatest? Which one of us is going to lead? And Jesus, of course, is very critical of those sorts of questions. James and John, who get the name Sons of Thunder, were so arrogant that they had their mom ask if they could sit at Jesus' right and left hand when he came into his kingdom. So they thought this might have been about power. But Jesus continually tells them it's not. So why did he do it? Let me just say this. Jesus chose these twelve to verify his claims through eyewitness testimony. 
If Jesus in the Gospel of Mark is choosing these 12 for anything, He's choosing from the beginning 12 who will be with Him through it all. So that they will not simply be given a story that they later will tell to other people, but so that they can live the experiences that they are going to testify to later. But He also wants them to experience a taste of the Kingdom of God personally. They're given the authority to preach and to cast out demons. And the disciples are invited by Jesus, these twelve, to taste the powers of the kingdom. So when they bring their testimony, not only will they have been there to witness everything that they were able to witness with Jesus, not only will they be there to see Him transfigured on the mountain when He's (laughs) transfigured in their presence, not only will they be here to watch Him raise the dead, to watch Him heal the blind and the lame, not only will they be there to hear His teachings, not only will they be witness to His death on the cross, not only will they be witness to His resurrection from the dead, But they will also have personally experienced some of the powers of that kingdom so they can testify to its truthfulness, thoroughgoing, not just with their mind, not just with their eyes, but with their very behaviors. So why does Jesus set them apart? He doesn't set them apart for power or for a buffer. He sets them apart to be unique spokespersons who were there. Matter of fact, in Matthew, when he sends them out, he says, you will be my witnesses make disciples of all nations and he goes on that way so that's our first point why choose any but I want to spend more time on the second question why 12 now Jesus had many more than 12 followers many more there weren't just these 12 we have story in Luke chapter 9 of Jesus sending out 72 disciples to do a mission In Acts chapter 1, verse 15, after Jesus has risen from the dead and He's ascended to heaven and He told His followers to wait for the coming Holy Spirit, there seemed to have been, according to Acts chapter 1, verse 15, 120 people in that room waiting. So He had a lot of followers. So why separate out 12? Why that number? To show continuity with the people of Israel. There were 12 tribes that made up the nation of Israel. And Jesus specifically chooses 12 apostles, I think, to show continuity with the people of Israel. Whatever Jesus was doing, He intended His people, His followers, those who would watch Him, when He walked around Israel with 12 followers, they were meant to see the 12 sons of Jacob. They were meant to see something new happening in Israel that was for all of Israel. Jesus, as much as He teaches the truth, as much as He behaves in truthful ways, Jesus is performance art in some ways. He knows that what He does, the choices He makes, the people He surrounds Himself with, are meant to teach people the nature of this kingdom. And so by choosing twelve, Jesus reaffirms God's commitment to the people of Israel. Twelve tribes, twelve appointees. Why show continuity with Israel? Why do that? The uniqueness of the twelve is indelibly linked with the uniqueness of Israel in the economy of God. We have to recognize that Jesus was not founding a new religion. Christianity was not a new religion. What Jesus is doing is establishing a new covenant with the same folks God established the first covenant with. 
This is a new covenant with Israel. And that's why he chooses 12. Now it's interesting that one of these 12 will betray him and in the gospel and then he commits suicide afterwards Judas in the book of acts there's a vacancy in the 12 and that's a problem for the disciples so they decide to fill it and they do fill it and then later on in the book of acts we have this story in which another man completely unaffiliated with Jesus as far as we know has an encounter with Jesus on a road as he's going to persecute the church his name was Saul and in that vision Jesus says to him that he wants him to be an apostle. And so we get this 13th apostle. And perhaps some of you have heard people argue that uh, maybe the church shouldn't have jumped so quickly to fill Judas's slot. Maybe it was Paul who was supposed to fill that slot so that we got the perfect number 12 and the disciples made a mistake. But I don't think that's right at all. In fact, I think Paul is, is significant because he's a 13th apostle to a 13th tribe the tribe of the Gentiles. That's you and me. And so we end up with 13 apostles, 12 chosen by Jesus, just like 12 were chosen by God to form the nation of Israel in the book of Genesis. And one abnormally born, to use Paul's language, as we Gentiles are abnormally brought into the kingdom of God through the people of Israel. And so we have, a, we have our apostle. The apostle to the Gentiles is Paul. But what we want to recognize, and I cannot say this enough, is that whoever we are in Jesus, we come to Him through a covenant He made with the people of Israel. That's why 12. In order for Jesus to be understandable, we need language, we need culture, we need stories to make sense of him. You see, when Jesus came, he couldn't just plop himself down and start speaking God's words. We would not know what he was talking about. And so what God does is he elects the people of Israel to be a unique culture, shaped for one purpose, to make sense of Jesus. And so if we have any chance to understand what Jesus is trying to tell us, we must go to that culture and place to get it. When Jesus chooses 12 apostles, he says to the church, once and for all, whatever I'm doing, I'm doing in the context of Israel. You want to understand why I've chosen 12, you have to go back into Israel to understand why there were 12 tribes. <coughs> Why did Jesus choose 12? In part to show that the new covenant was still a covenant made with Israel. And that covenant incorporates Gentiles. Praise the Lord. It's why we're here. But we are a 13th tribe abnormally born. And we must go to the other 12 to understand our election. To understand our hope. I hope you're doing some of that. So that's the first one. And now it's going to have teeth in this last point. Why the detail about Judas? Well, once we establish that Jesus makes no sense apart from his rooting in the people of Israel, now we can answer the question, why tell us Judas was going to betray him? You notice that at the very last verse, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. 
Now, when we read this as Gentiles, as not as Jewish people, not rooted in the First Testament, but just abstractly thinking about the story as it stands, lots of weird things happen. One of the things that people say is that this is a way to add some intrigue into the story. Up until this point, Jesus' attacks have all come from outside. right? He has his 12 disciples, but it's the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the Herodians. They're all attacking him from the outside. But now Mark wants the plot to thicken. And so he wants us to know, ooh, the danger is from within. And so now Jesus' inner circle has a traitor in it. And now, now it'll get interesting. The problem with reading it that way as to why Jesus would mention this now, why Mark would mention it now, is that that never really plays out. We don't get like these, you know, these sneaky little conversations between Judas and other people and most of the gospel. It doesn't happen till the end. You don't see Judas trying to persuade anybody to betray Jesus. That doesn't happen till the end. We just hear this and then it never comes up again until Judas comes and asks for money to tell them where Jesus is praying on the night before he's crucified. So why tell us about Judas? There's more at stake than simply a plot thickening device. Judas is a first century form of the name Judah. It's a very popular name. Matter of fact, there are at least two Judases in Jesus' own disciples, and Jesus has a brother named Judas, who wrote the book of Jude. Very popular name, because Judah is a popular tribe. Matter of fact, we call the people in Jesus' state Jews because they're all from the tribe of Judah, the only surviving tribe of ancient Israel. The other uh, ten have been wiped out. And the you're, you're noticing the math doesn't add up. You'll have to ask me about it later. <laughs> but in the story of the twelve original tribes of Israel, there is a Judah there too. And he is also a betrayer. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 37. The story of Joseph, which concludes the book of Genesis from chapters 37 through 50, it begins in chapter 37. And uh, some of you are familiar with the story, some may not be, so let me just rehearse it. Joseph is one of, at this point, 11 sons of Jacob. I don't think Benjamin is born yet. If he is, he's very young. There will eventually be 12. But Joseph is one of uh, at least 11. And Jacob had two wives, one wife that he loved and one wife with which he was stuck. It's a sad story. But Leah is the wife he doesn't much care for. He was tricked into marrying her. But God blesses her, makes her fertile, it says in the book of Genesis, because of uh, her husband's lack of love for her. But the wife that Jacob loved and initially wanted to marry before he was tricked is a woman named Rachel. And she only has one child, eventually two, but at first only one, Joseph. So you can imagine who's dad's favorite. Joseph is dad's favorite because he's the child of dad's favorite wife. And so Jacob spoils Joseph. And his brothers are noticeably jealous of him. And to top everything else off, Joseph has a dream. And in that dream, he dreams that his father and his mother and, and all of his brothers are going to bow down and worship him. And then he has the gall to tell them that he had this dream, right? So they're noticeably upset. Now, there's a rivalry here that you have to read the story closely to get. The firstborn son of, of Jacob is Reuben. And Reuben has lost his birthright 
because he slept with one of his father's concubines. That's a sordid story, not nice. But Reuben lost his birthright because of that. The next two sons of Jacob are Simeon and Levi. They've lost their birthright because their sister was raped and they went and murdered the entire city in which the man who raped their sister lived. And they lost their birthright too. So now, the next oldest who should have the birthright and the blessing is a man named Judah. And he's the oldest born son of Leah. And Joseph is the firstborn son of Rachel. So there is a power struggle here. Who's going to get the blessing? And so, what we find out is that Joseph's brothers all want to murder him. But Judah is crafty. He's smart. He realizes we can't just kill him. And so Judah comes up with a plan. Reuben wants to win back his father's favor, so he has a plan too, but his doesn't work out. Judah's works. And Judah's plan, you can find this in Genesis 37, verses 26 to 27, is this. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he's our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. Judah sold Joseph into slavery in Egypt. Judas sold Jesus. That's his betrayal. Same story. Why? Jesus deliberately picks a Judah to repeat what Judah did. So we can understand what's at stake, I think, in the story of Jesus. You remember how the story goes for those who have read it. Joseph gets sold into slavery in Egypt. He has a period of pretty intense suffering there, but he rises in the ranks, and then he gets accused falsely of trying to go after the wife of a high-ranking official in Egypt, and so he's thrown back in prison. And then through his ability to interpret dreams granted by God, he's, he raises back through the ranks, and he ends up the sub-ruler under Pharaoh of the entire nation of Egypt. So he ends up in a pretty good place. And then there's a famine that strikes the entire region that affects where the, his family lives in Israel, and it affects all of Egypt, and it's horrible. And so his family has to come and get food, and Egypt is the only place that has food because Joseph interpreted the dream that told him to save up. And so his brothers come, and Joseph sees them, and he doesn't tell them who he is right away. And he plays games with them, and he makes them upset, and, and he gets them to a point where his younger brother, Benjamin, who's now born, another son of, of Rachel, he, he keeps him prisoner in Egypt, and this petrifies Judah. Judah realizes he got away with one getting rid of a rival, but he will never survive a second. And so he is desperately afraid, and he says to Joseph, you can't keep Benjamin. We, this, my father lost one son from this wife. We can't lose two. You've got to let him go. Take me instead. Judah, the betrayer, take me instead. And then Joseph reveals himself. He can't, he can't control himself. He weeps. He has to be taken out of the room. And then he reveals himself to his brothers. This is the story we find in Genesis 45, verses 4 through 11. And I think Mark tells us that Jesus chose Judas who betrayed him to point us to this very text. Genesis 45, verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed, and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you 
For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. I wish Judas had read those words before he committed suicide. Because Jesus was not betrayed. He was in control, the Gospels tell us. He didn't accidentally go to the cross. He was born to go there. So what Judas did was play a part in a bigger drama. Judas didn't get it. But I think Mark wants us to get it. So here I want to draw all these conversations into a fabric. What kind of a kingdom is Jesus establishing? We can never be rid of Israel. This kingdom is rooted in Israel. It can be rooted nowhere else. In the book of Ephesians, Paul says that we are built on the foundation of the prophets and apostles with Jesus as the chief cornerstone. And all that is built in the church is built on that foundation. Paul says in Romans chapter 11 that all of us who are Gentiles are grafted into the olive tree of Israel. And he says, it's the root that supports you, not you that support the root. So do not be arrogant, but be afraid. We will never be rid of Israel. This kingdom is rooted in Israel, can be rooted nowhere else. Second, this kingdom is built on betrayal. It is built on betrayal. We'll never be rid of Israel. We'll never be rid of betrayal. We will never be rid of forgiveness. Because the betrayal is what precipitates the forgiveness for Jesus. The betrayal is what sent Joseph to Egypt to save his family. So at the very heart of this kingdom is sin and forgiveness. And fourth, we can never be rid of reconciliation. Judah and Joseph reconciled for the good of the nation of Israel. And now instead of one brother being chosen, as had been true all the way through the rest of Genesis, all twelve are chosen together. I don't know what would have happened with Judas. I know he would have been reconciled. I know Jesus would have gone to him. But Judas couldn't survive the night. But another man betrayed Jesus too. Peter. Who denied him three times. And Jesus does reconcile with Peter. We can never be rid of Israel. And for that reason, we can never be rid of this book. You might have different values than this book has. You might disagree with some of the teachings, some of the commands, some of the laws that you find here, some of the examples that are taught, some of the things Paul says. You might think you know better. The world might think it knows better. But the problem is the kingdom of God is not rooted in the world. It's not rooted in your heart or in mine. It's rooted in Israel. So the ethics of the kingdom are born out of Israel. They're not born out of you and me. And the teachings of Israel are here. The prophets and apostles were Jewish. And they have preserved what we need to know. The kingdom is built on this testimony. It can be built no other place. 
If you find yourself substituting your own wisdom or the wisdom of our age for the wisdom of the people of Israel, what we effectively do is we cut ourselves off from the root and we try to plant ourselves in other soil. The scriptures say, cannot happen. Covenants with Israel. We'll never be rid of them. And so we'll never be rid of this. And if the culture hates what it finds here, then it rejects the root that supports us. We'll never be rid of betrayal. Sin will be in our midst. You might think you're escaping the world to enter a little safer world where nobody ever harms anybody. But that is not the kingdom Jesus has founded. It's a kingdom that assumes betrayal and anticipates forgiveness. This kingdom and this side of reality will never be rid of betrayal and we must make sure it is never rid of forgiveness. And we must be sure it is never rid of reconciliation of the bringing back together of those who have been separated because of sin. This is the kingdom of God. Rooted in Israel. Built by betrayal and forgiveness. And a kingdom of reconciliation. We are built on Jesus. Rooted in Israel. Betrayed by a friend. Forgiving that friend at the cost of his own life. And then offering forgiveness to those who harmed him. And reestablishing relationship. This is what we are founded on. We can never be more than this. And we should never be less.